Today, we're all looking for ways to save. That's why I want to tell you about HealthLock. What is HealthLock? HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance and monitors your medical claims as they come in, then flags any hidden errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To save, visit healthlock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's healthlock.com. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And now in Kentucky, there's a new law that says you can't say puberty. We have such an interesting show today. Media Matters CEO Angelo Carasone stops by to talk about the implications of this Fox News settlement with Dominion. Then we'll talk to Jeff Charlotte about his latest book, The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War about the real threats of creeping fascism. But first, we have the host of The Time of Monsters, The Nation's G-Tier. Welcome back to Fast Politics. Fan favorite, Jeet here. I'm here, ready to serve. (laughs) (laughs) So here we are. We are at the end of the DeSantis news cycle, or perhaps we are at the beginning. I want to talk to you, since you are in Canada, where life continues, still sort of sane, right? A little bit, yeah, yeah. I want to talk to you about DeSantis quickly, because I think the top line on this is, if you come for the mouse, you best not miss. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for, for me, like, you know, Disney versus DeSantis is, let them fight a bit of business. <laughs> 
<laughs> One interesting thing I, I saw was that a lot of Florida Republicans are kind of mad at DeSantis because he's kind of like turning the entire state into a launching pad and making all state politics about stuff that will get him national prominence. <laughs> right. I don't think the Florida Republicans, like that's high on their agenda, like getting into a fight with Disney, you know, which is a major employer. Yeah. With their largest employer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole thing is, uh, seems like very bizarre, except that, I mean, I think the real story here is the sort of poverty of Republican politics. That, like, right. A friend of mine who had been reading DeSantis's campaign autobiography, which apparently has this line, like, you know, like, make America Florida, which is like, like that's right. a, like, yes, a that's much his, less good version of make America great. I mean, like, make America great is, you know, yeah. you have to admit, uh, great again is a, is a is a catchy slogan. This is just makes no sense. But having said that, there's apparently like no economics in the book or hardly any, you know, except for woke corporations, so-called. And so like, I think it, it does sort of speak to um, a sort of poverty of agenda, which we, we see in other areas as well. I mean, a lot of it, you know, the focus on social issues, but like what, what social issues, like all this stuff about like trans athletes, you know, like you're talking about in the Kansas school system where they recently passed a law against us, you know, you apparently had like three trans kids that would have been in athletic programs, except two of them are like seniors. So even the, the law doesn't apply to them. It, it applied to like one student out of a school system that has more than 100,000 people. So it, it just like this desire to have like politics that like, you know, gets you media attention, riles up the base, but actually like is so far removed from reality and from daily life of ordinary people, even of ordinary conservative people. Like I can't imagine the number of people that like wake up every morning like I friggin hate Disney. Yeah. I really don't <laughs> want that trans girl to be like competing in the my school um, races. To me, it seems like it speaks to a poverty of politics. I mean, I think this is like Trump's kind of advantage over DeSantis, that Trump is more willing, especially in 2016, but even now, to actually like throw in like meat and potato issues to like try to reach a broader base. I mean, like, you know, I think a lot of liberals underestimate the fact that in, in 2016, Trump was the only Republican who's got on stage and says, I'm not going to touch Medicare and Social Security. Now he's lying, right? Right. <laughs> right, of course. <laughs> I would hope. He said that and he talked about, you know, like redoing NAFTA and, and you know, he was offering something that someone who's not a, not, not a totally Fox News poisoned brain can like think is important. And this is true of this year as well. Like if you look at Trump's ad against DeSantis, which is a great ad, I, I, I got it. You know, you got to give the devil his due. Putting Figures is a very memorable. It's like Lyndon Johnson's ad against Barry Goldwater with the girl counting off and the nuclear explosion and then the atomic bomb. It's like something, you know, you remember that ad and you're going to remember, you know, the put the nasty pudding figures. But what's also interesting is what is actually the voiceover where Trump says, you know, like he can't keep his hand off, not just pudding, but also Medicare and Social Security. And again, this is something like 
if you're like, you know, a lot of Republicans, they, the, um, the voter base skews el- elderly. If you're going to have a choice between some guy who's like going after Disney and some guy who's saying, I won't touch your Medicare and Social Security. Well, you know, like one is speaking to real stuff and one isn't. Right. The line you just said was the poverty of the Republican agenda. I mean, they do have an agenda, but they can't talk about it. Like they actually do want to cut Medicare and Social Security. But <laughs> but it's wildly unpopular. Yeah. I think that's what is the fuel for this focus on Disney and really evil, vicious attacks on trans people. I think that's a really good point about this idea that they really do have an agenda. It's not popular and it's it's what no one wants. I mean, that's like I think about Rick Scott in Florida and that one time he was like, no, we really do want to cut Medicare and Medicaid and, you know, put poor people on the street. No, that's our plan. And everyone's like, shh. Yeah. That's right. yeah no, that's, that's exactly right. Yeah. And I, I you know, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't want to get in the prediction game. Like, you know, like, you know, Trump is very old. Yeah, maybe he'll die. That's what all the Republicans want him to die. I mean, you read these pieces. We're hoping for the actual aerial tables. I mean, how do you become this kind of coward? Honestly, I think that's a fool's hope as well. It's worth thinking about. You know, the, the biggest predicator of long life it was wealth and and how long your parents live. Right. Trump's parents, you like, they had long lost their mind, but they lived in their nineties. Yeah. Trump's father, I believe, died at ninety three. I think Trump losing his marbles would not, unfortunately. Right. If anything, it would help. There was a reporter for NBC News who was talking about there's no guarantee that this doesn't just keep going. That's right. I, I believe you can correct me if I'm wrong. Was that Benji uh, Sarland? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think he made the very good point, which I had all, all, uh, also thought, like, like forget about Trump 2024. Right. Start worrying about 2028. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Trump 2032. Like, you know, like if you actually do the math of how long people in his family live, this could be like we're just in the, the beginning of Trump's political career. Right. And Trump is playing a little bit of the act thing as well. Like he's basically he I knew his uh, recent message to DeSantis. He says, you know, you're a young man, you know, like you can uh Right. Right. You know, it doesn't have to be twenty twenty eight even. You can run in twenty thirty two, you know, like DeSantis, even though he looks as old as Trump. He's actually in his 40s, right? <laughs> He's our age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it is incredible. I wanted to talk to you about the Fox settlement, the sound of a thousand journalists sighing that they wanted to spend six weeks in Delaware, where everything is closed on both Sundays and Mondays. Discuss. No, I want to ask you, in my mind, and again, I'm coming to you, but in my mind, the top line here is that things like lawsuits will not save democracy from disinformation. Yeah, no, I I, I think that's right. I, no, I'm glad that the lawsuit happened. I'm glad that they're getting their money. I'm glad. I We haven't seen, I guess, the apology or there, there's probably some sort of agreement as to what Fox will have to say. But defamation suits are for a particular purpose and their particular right. purpose is not necessarily to establish the total truth of a situation. It's to, to give Give people of an injured redress. And yeah, I mean, this is a broader thing, which I, I sort of have written about and tweeted about a little bit, which is I, I do think it, liberals would need to understand that you can't use prosecutors and the courts to do the work of politics. Now, am I glad that Trump was arrested? Yes, I am. I'm very glad. Right. But actually, if you look at all the polling, his support 
in the Republican Party went up. And then maybe in the general, it'll hurt him. But it's no substitute for politics of actually having to create a coalition that can defeat Trump once again. And I think the same thing applies to Fox. And what I'm a bit sad about is that there's no policy discussions because everything that Fox is, is a creation of specific political choices that were made. And it could be that we're too far gone that, you know, like, the, the you know, like um, hell is truth seen too late. But back in the 70s and 80s, when Rupert Murdoch first came to the United States, there was actually a lot of controversy. Should we allow this Australian maniac who has a long history of like publishing dishonest tabloids, like a foothold in American politics? And there was like, if you go back, there's actually like, you know, like at every stage, you know, when he brought the New York Post later, you know, when he uh, bought the, uh, tried to start a cable news network, there were people saying like, you know, like, do we want to allow, allow this? And unfortunately, they allowed it, right? Like there was his year of deregulation. But there has to be a kind of political answer or uh, political response to this. And I'm, I don't think we're going to get the fairness doctrine back or right. any of the things that like prevented Fox from existing in the you know 60s and 70s. But I think that one could delegitimize Fox much more than has been done right, and right. not treat it as a news thing. And I think you're seeing it only exists in the form of jokes. Like you see people on CNN chortling like Fox is like complaining about their um, reputation or whatever. But I actually think, you know, it should be a top line thing. Like this is a dishonest propaganda network. This is something like Democrats should be saying, but not just Democrats. I think like, you know, like even media people consider themselves nonpartisan. Like I would like to see it treated as a normal thing on the New York Times and on CNN that, oh, you know, this is reported from Fox, which we know is a dishonest propaganda network. And anytime anyone mentions or discusses Fox, that should be like how it's characterized. That should be its epithet. And I think we see some of that in how the press secretary has been treating uh, Fox uh, at press conferences. And unfortunately, a lot of journalists, like they tend to stick up for Fox saying like, well, no, we're part of a, they're part of the journalistic community. I have to say, like we have to say like, no, they are not part of the journalistic community. There's no reason to take them any more seriously than to say, you know, the National Enquirer, you know, which is also in bed with Trump. I honestly think the political work that needs to be done is to like really hammer in that this is a dishonest network and a propaganda outlet. Yeah. No, I mean, again, this is the fundamental problem here, right? Which is you have a problem with the company You hope that a capitalist thing like, and I'm not anti-capitalist by any stretch of the imagination, but the idea of a defamation suit is ultimately these people defamed my business. And so I'm going to get them for the money they owe me, which is exactly what it's supposed to be. But the I think the wish casting on all of our parts, or at least on mine, too, was that from this there would be, you know, a reckoning on Fox News. And that's not how any of this is going to work. That's not how any of it's going to work. Although I do think that the discovery process and all the things that have come out have given valuable ammunition that, you know, should be used against Fox. And like people, you know, are talking about it. But I honestly like want this to be like the kind of constant refrain whenever Fox is 
mentioned that, you know, like they, it should not be seen as a journalistic entity. It is something else. It is a propaganda network. There's other work to be done in terms of creating alternative networks. And like, but I mean, like, you, we have to think of this as a political project and not see like the courts as a solution to this. I just, I don't think the courts can can satisfy that. They're, that's not what right. they're set up for do. And in some ways, like, I think it hurts you politically, like if that's where your hope is. Right. Because like it, it prevents you from thinking about like organizing. Right. And the larger issues. Now, I want to get back to sort of what we're doing on this earth here and Democrats trying desperately to uh, right the judiciary as much as possible. One of the largest issues now for Democrats is a Democratic senator. Yes. Who has no plans on returning. Let's game this out for a minute. Here we have Diane Feinstein. I wrote a piece about this this week. 89 years old. Case of shingles. Not sure when she's going to return. Talk to me about what you see happening here. Well, unfortunately, <laughs> I don't think that there's any good kind of scenarios. Like, obviously, the, the the move to, like, you know, just get her temporarily out of the judiciary and appoint someone else, the Republicans aren't going to allow that. Right. Smartly. <laughs> there's a lot of people calling for her to resign. Right. I also would kind of join just in, but not for the Judiciary Committee, because, but just because I think California you know, is a state and, you know, the biggest state, 40 million people, they deserve representation. Yeah. There are people on her staff, apparently, who are telling reporters they don't know if she can ever return to D.C. Right. On the judiciary staff, like, here's what can happen. Like, okay, she resigns, a new senator is um, appointed, goes to D.C., and then Schumer can try to put them on the Judiciary Committee. But again, you need Republican approval, which normally you would get. But I don't know if the Republicans might actually just say no, like because right. the, the judges are so important. This is like, unfortunately, because we got a situation where Congress can't do anything. Judges are where power lies in America. And if they do that, then you're going to have a tit for tat because the, the one reason you could think you have some leverage is that Republicans also have old senators, you know, right, 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 <laughs> six right. senators. And, you know, like in the next two years or next four years, it's easy to imagine them in the same seat. But they might just think like, you know, no, 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 judges are so important. We don't care if they don't like return the favor for us. Like, and so you're going to actually have not just the Judiciary Committee, but the Senate as a whole is going to be paralyzed, right? Like this is actually going to lead to further dysfunction. It's a kind of grim scenario. And that's why, you know, like I think the people, there are people who've been calling for Diane Feinstein to resign for a long time. And I think, you know, they're kind of been vindicated. Like I think this is something that was kind of foreseeable. Unfortunately, and I think we're in a kind of very grim situation. The only thing I can maybe say is maybe it's good to have that clarity. Like once you get a situation where the Senate is totally paralyzed and then you can take that to the next election and tell people that, you know, Republicans care about judges. They care about judges because they want to end abortion. And this is like where they have the power and like, you know, like make that an issue in like every state because uh, I think this hurts them. And again, this is the political solution. If one could have had a time machine, the better political solution would have been to the Democrats to think like, are we a political party that's interested in power and in like doing things or are we a job agency for the superannuated? The thing that I have been struck by, which I've really been disappointed by, is some of the Democrats, like people like Kirsten Gillibrand from the state of New York, my senator, who was very vocal 
about Al Franken resigning has been very vocal that it's not fair to ask 89-year-old Diane Feinstein to resign, even though she has no plans of coming back and she's retiring at the end of her term because it's sexism. And we're in a very fucking sexist country. Our bodily rights are being stripped away from us. It's a terrible, very fucked up time to be a woman, to raise a daughter. Asking an 89-year-old for whom there have been whispers of cognitive ability questions for the last five to 10 years to resign is not sexist. You're welcome. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, no, and I, I would just add to that, like, like you know, like if we think about, you know, there's a way in which gerontocracy and feminism are also at odds with each other because, like, if she goes, you know, like she's going to be replaced by, you know, someone like Barbara Lee, right, or, or Katie a woman, Porter, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's always like, you know, like younger women are not going to be able, not partially able to, you know, make their way up as one sees in other countries. You know, like you have like. 30-year-old women who are like leaders of big countries because in America you have this crazy gerontocracy. Now, I mean, in all fairness, the gerontocracy is not just the Diane Feinstein issue. It's a larger issue and it's a structural issue because you have seniority. Like you actually like have a system that rewards keeping senators in as long as power. You you know, I just think, you know, it's just, uh, I mean, I think these are like bigger issues, but right now I, I actually, I'm a lot more pessimistic than a lot of people are. Just, I, I do actually think that if she does resign, which she should, and California gets a proper, you know, senator who can serve, you could still have the judiciary committee not functioning or functioning in a way that serves Democrats. I, I just actually, Republicans are so dependent on the judges. They might actually, you know, like do something that is otherwise completely nuts and completely like an escalation of polarization and dysfunction. Jeet here. We are out of time. Thank you for joining us. Always great to talk. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. (sighs) Good one, Dad. (sighs) Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners. And man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. 
And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024, and we're going to get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you here on Next Question is going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you on our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey. You know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma like I called my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. I loved it. Your energy and joy. I'm squeezing every minute I can for you out of this season of Next Question. Last question, I promise. You have to go. I have to go. <laughs> but it's been so fun. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Angelo Carasone is the CEO of Media Matters. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Angelo. Thank you for having me. It is the settlement that launched a thousand homes. <laughs> Talk to me about the Dominion case and Fox News. I mean, they won, right? Fox won. Yeah, I guess. I mean, they benefited from not having a trial. I mean, having to pay $787 million is not a good thing. Right. And they, they, it is going to hurt them in other ways. Like, I think, but, and this is where it isn't satisfying because it's not over and these things have a long tail. But, right. like, they filed documents, SEC documents, SEC filings, the eight individual times where they separately said, that this was nothing, that there was no risk to shareholders, there was no risk to investors, there was right. no risk to the company. And they made those material representations knowing full well that there was evidence that specifically could actually create a risk. Like they have an obligation to at least tell people that. Like they are going to get busted for what's come out and having to pay $787 million, like the size of that will affect those other lawsuits. But yes, I mean, I, I think to your point, they very much won because having Fox on trial and having Murdoch take the stand and Tucker and others would have been a level of scrutiny, not just from the general public, but it would have hit their own audience in a way that would have would have weakened them substantially. And now they're they don't, they're not going to be weakened substantially, at least initially. Right. But it does open the door to shareholder lawsuits. 
Right. Can you talk about that? So basically, share, shareholders are suing right now. There's one lawsuit that's already underway. There's a, another group of shareholders that are basically operating together that have requested a bunch of sort of like pre-trial materials, but they can get access to that, that information as a result of the fact that they are significant shareholders. They're almost certainly to sue. And then there's a, another group of shareholders that are in the process of putting together some kind of like a class action. And they are basically suing for breach of fiduciary duty and saying, look, you, you messed up here and you cost us money. That will ultimately settle uh, as well. Mur the Murdochs will have to pay out more money there and it could be very substantial. I mean, the last time the Murdoch faced a shareholder lawsuit, it was because he overpaid to buy his daughter's company so that he could put her back <laughs> into the company. <laughs> put her on the board. This was in the wake of the phone hacking scandal. He needed another vote on the board. And so what he did is he bought his daughter's company, <laughs> overpaid for it, so that she could join the board, shareholders sued, and he, he settled with them for a couple hundred million dollars just to like make it go away. Right. So he'll almost certainly settle here. The real problem here, and this is the thing that I think would have been amazing for the trial, is that, yeah, it would have been great for the Fox people to see all this, and that's one whole important thing. But also, as the trial would have been happening right now, Fox is currently renegotiating. Carriage face. Yes. And like, ugh. First, I think you should do a two-second explainer on what the carriage fees are, just for for anyone who's not completely read in on this. A carriage fee is what a cable company pays to have a TV channel available to its customers. So if you have a TV channel, I give you like a couple cents, and then I get to offer it to my customers. And it's usually a nominal fee. Fox News is actually the second most expensive channel everybody's cable bill. What's the first? ESPN. Oh, yeah, because that makes Which, sense. It makes yeah. sense. Right, exactly. Everyone I say that to, like, oh, that makes sense, of course. Well, yeah. But Fox News being number two, that does not make sense because that's not how it's supposed to work. But it doesn't matter how they got here, but they really leveraged this as a revenue driver. And the part about it that's, that's sort of wild is they are in the process of the negotiations right now. And just to put a number on it, so there's three contracts that are up. If they were to get just the increases that they're looking for, it would be from the only these three, not even all of them, it would be an extra $960 million in annual profit, about $2.9 billion over the course of the contract. So, which is and that's just that yeah. settlement plus plus. Exactly. Because right. when you take out the fact that they're going to write off 200 plus million dollars in, you know, as a tax deduction, it really costs them $500 million. And, you know, it's basically twice <laughs> what they ha ended up having to pay here. So, if, you, if you're the Murdochs and you're sitting in court, the thing to keep in mind is like, yeah, we need to, we have to be successful at our cable negotiations. And this, having a trial unfold while we're in, right, it's you know, be in a boardroom, it would have been really hard. And the one thing I'll say too, that is, I feel like it's just gotten totally buried, but I really think is a big deal is, you know, obviously they had gone back and forth and given each other some offers, but the very last offer, the final offer came a few minutes after the judge appointed a special master to yeah. investigate Rupert Murdoch for withholding documents. Right. And you have to wonder what they didn't want everyone to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that's a really good point. The special master documents. I want to ask you, so what are the three cable companies that they're negotiating with right now? Comcast, Charter, and Spectrum. And okay. to put a number on it, there's about, about 90 million cable customers right. in the country. Comcast, Charter, and Spectrum combined have about 36 million customers. 
Wow. So this is about a third of all their people. Yeah, it's a big deal for them. And also the thing to also keep in mind is this is actually the first in a series of renegotiations that they're actually going to renegotiate all of their contracts this year. Oh, so this will set the bar for everything else, too. Yeah. Bingo. This sets the price. And so right now they get about two. So everybody that has cable right now pays two dollars and 18 cents a month to Fox News, at least. Wow. Yes. And Fox News is, is opening requests is a little more than three dollars. Wow. Right now. It would be the single largest increase in cable history. Nobody's ever gotten a, a dollar increase. It's just wild. And there's no way to opt out. So all of us who pay for cable are paying two nineteen to Rupert Murdoch. That's it. Every month. All of us. Everybody. There's no way out of it. And, you know, my, my point with the cable companies is, you know, you, they could drop the channel, which is incredible. They could offer a package that's Fox free. That's another possibility. The easiest thing to do, and I think this is the part that's that's sort of incredible, is that the cable companies are overpaying for Fox. Fox right. is, Fox's price is inflated. And even generously, I say it's probably two times market rate right now. It should be about a dollar and change if we're being if we're being really generous to Fox. Right. Because you could make a case that ESPN is offering things you couldn't get somewhere else, whereas Fox Correct. has a similar programming to OAN and Newsmax. That's it. And like so, you know, and like if you compare it to other similarly situated news channels and yeah, like, you know, they, they should be probably more than CNN and MSNBC because they have a bigger audience and their audience is more passionate, but it's a really small audience compared to... So, for example, like, basically, if you look at the totality of the universe of cable, only 14% of cable customers, like, ever across the board of the 90 million ever actually even turn on Fox News, like, once in a blue moon. Obviously, Fox's audience is only like 3 million. But like if you're saying how many people ever touch Fox News in a given year, even just like stop on it for five minutes, it's like 14%, which if you compare that to like TBS and other channels, usually those are like 50, 60, 70%. Right. It's a very specific audience that it's popular with. Exactly. And this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where real accountability starts, by the way, because like if the cable companies just give Fox a, a straight renewal... Fox basically becomes unprofitable in a couple years because unless they could figure out a way to get their advertisers back. If cable companies actually reset Fox's like rate and said, hey, we're not going to pay you two times their value anymore. We're just going to pay you market rate. We're going to give you a buck. Fox News all of a sudden goes from being profitable to not profitable overnight. I mean, is there any chance that this happens? Yes. So here's the good news. And I, and you know me, I'm pretty realistic about this stuff. Like I always try to figure out like, what's the nuts and bolts? How does it actually move? So Every cable company has this thing called the demand score. Right. And this absolutely helps explain why Fox is able to get their rates so high. So this thing called the demand score is like, it's a formula that they figure out, okay, how much do people really want this cable company, uh, this, this this channel? So let's make sure we get in our package. Fox, during their, their renegotiations, has all of their viewers call. And basically they say, hey, you know, your cable company is about to take Fox News away right, from you. Right, like, you right, better right. call right now. So, but just think about that. They have 3 million viewers at most. There's 87 million people that never watch Fox. Right. Or right, want right. it or certainly don't want to pay for it. So basically, if people call their cable companies and just say, don't pay for Fox, I don't want to pay for Fox, don't pay, overpay for Fox, don't make me pay for Fox, that all gets factored into the demand score. And so when the cable companies are sitting at the table, they actually have some ability to, to negotiate and say, no, you know what, we, don't, we have the math here. We yeah, we'd eclipse you, and I'll give you one bit of good news. So when does this happen? Right now. It's happening right now. We are calling. And I'll give you a, a bit of good news to prove it. Right before Christmas, the Murdochs were renegotiating with one cable provider, everything but Fox. 
And we ran a test campaign to get cable to call their cable company. In this case, it was DirecTV. And we said, look, I know it's Fox Sports. I know it's the other one. But like, you, it still all goes to Fox. So just don't increase the rate. We generated, there, there were like about 13,000 phone calls to the company that was more than Fox was able to generate. DirecTV did not agree to Fox Sports increases. Even conservatively, Fox lost anywhere between two and $300 million in anticipated revenue simply because the math was the math. People, Customers called and said, I don't want my cable bill to be raised. And so these are very winnable fights. It's just no one's actually done this ever except for Fox. Fox has actually done this every single renewal for the past 10 years. That's why their rate is so high. This is one of those moments where if we want to actually have some, some accountability for Fox... The only way to really do that is to cut off their profit engine. And, and this is it. Wow. So basically, if you're listening to this podcast, you should call Fox News. Yes. And I, you need one more incentive. Let me tell you this. Fox, if you thought Fox was bad before, you ain't seen nothing yet. They are going to get worse than ever. After they negotiate their cable carriage. Right. E- even during it, because the cable companies don't really care about the content. All they care about is the, the math, the phone calls, the people. And so... Right now, Fox just bought a license to lie. The settlement is behind them. And they need to resecure their footing with their audience because it's a little wobbly. They need to get them be, you know, to be fully passionate again. So they need to rebuild that relationship. They need to activate their audience ahead of the primaries, ahead of these negotiations. Like They need to sort of stir the pot. And that means that anything that may have held them back because of how it could play in trial... They don't have to worry about that anymore. They don't have to worry about a jury. They don't have to worry about the uncertainty. What about Smartmatic? Uh, Fox's plan there is to, is to draw that out until at least 2025, oh, which wow. is conceivable because they the haven't election. started Discovery. Yep. Right. And they only need, and really, truly, they, Fox only needs to draw this out until you know the end of this year in order to get through all these contracts. Because the thing to keep in mind about the contracts is that it's guaranteed revenue. Once right. the contract is signed, there's no changing it until the next renewal. When is the next renewal? The next renewals won't start until at least 2026, but Fox is trying to get another year in. Right. So maybe 2026, 2027, 2028. So by then, cable will be so small. And right. cable's hemorrhaging three, four, five, 10 million, four, five million customers a year. It, it just won't be as significant uh, of a revenue driver for Fox in the next round. Like this is really their last run at this well, at least. Right, 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 right. And Fox is the second most expensive cable channel, which I think is just shocking to me. I know. It's just nuts. This is how they operate. The part about this that's so upsetting and bothersome is that this is the result of actual accountability and then Fox adapting. So when Glenn Beck got fired, he got fired because he lost all of his advertisers and Fox couldn't keep him anymore. Right after that happened... Roger Ailes was like, you know what? We're done. This is never happening again. We are never going to be susceptible to like these little, like, like, like these, like, you know, these, these people in the marketing industry. We are going to, our audience is rabid. We're going to turn our audience against the cable companies and, 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 and raise their bills without, they're picking our pockets. Right. And let's think there's their own audience too. Like they're ripping everybody off. It's just, the same way they shape politics, the same way they can turn CRT into like a thing. That's what they did with these cable fights is they came up each time and they leveraged their audience and some other properties to basically just keep jacking up these rates. So wild. I mean, it's not wild. It's just fucking crazy. So I want to ask you now. So if you're listening to this podcast, you probably should. 
call your cable company and tell them you don't want Fox. You don't want to pay two dollars and 18 cents for Fox News. Is that right? That's it. That's the easiest way to do it. And if you don't know what to do, you can go to this website, nofoxfee.com. We know when the good the negotiations are happening. We give you the contact information. It's not one of those like annoying thing. We're not going to send you emails for three dollars. I just want to give you a telephone number to call. I want to save you three dollars. I don't want you to give me three dollars. That's basically it. I know it's like good. annoying to do it, but it's it's actually worth it. It's like the one thing where we have the numbers on our side, and if we generate more calls, we win. It's it's very simple. So you feel like right now Fox is. They are going to drag out the Smartmatic. What about this other case with this woman who was fired, Abby Grossberg? It's a little bit unclear. If they can get to some kind of discovery, then they'll probably settle quickly. Right. But it's, you know, Fox usually tries to win these things before discovery or to limit discovery. I mean, they didn't even start talking about a settlement with Dominion until... After the court ruled that Rupert Murdoch was susceptible to discovery. Right. Prior to that, they were like, nah, you, you, we're not even going to bother because as long as you can't get access to the real stuff, we don't care. Right. So I, I think it will depend on how they handle, how discovery handles. And if, if Grossberg is able to get through, then they'll probably settle quickly. The Murdochs typically settle, obviously, most places settle, but they usually wait until they think it could have an effect on them. And so that's my hunch. And I think they'll do the same thing with the shareholder lawsuits once they consolidate. They're going to wait until everybody plays their hand first. They're not going to do anything too early. They're going to wait until all the shareholders that are going to sue come forward. And they're letting that organizing happen behind the scenes. But if you notice, the thing they're very focused on right now is making sure their stock price doesn't decline. And that's why, that is why, by the way, Fox News went immediately to a right-wing outlet and was like, hey, don't worry, we're going to write this off in our taxes last night. You know, like they made sure that, and that's also why that information about the carriage increase came out. It's so much money, it won't. It doesn't make sense. Right, that's right. It doesn't make any sense. And getting getting that out there for them is like, it's all about making sure that they don't wobble the markets. Because for that's how you keep shareholders on the side, right? Is that Shareholders, what they think they can probably get most of these shareholder lawsuits to drop before they even start by basically saying, but do you really want to hurt yourself? You know, do you really want to knock down the value of the stock by suing? Like that's sort of their strategy. And they've run this strategy in the past and it, it would works with mixed results. And then if it gets serious, they'll settle. But all those things will happen in a way so far removed from the spotlight that we've seen with Dominion that even if it does get a little further along, it will pale in comparison to what we, we've experienced the last couple of months. Right. There's no way the Abby Grossberg lawsuit is as big as the Dominion lawsuit. That's right. Even with the tape? The tapes, look, there, there's a couple of tapes that are significant. I'm not, it's unclear how much more she has. I think that's where the special master stuff would have came in because what that basically provided was access to a real investigation of what material Fox held back during the discovery process. And- it seemed like that really freaked them out. You know, they 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 were very engaged on that. Even before a special master was appointed, Fox said, because I had been tracking this, Fox sent a bunch of letters to the judge over the weekend. Like, it's sort of like a bad, like when you're like having like a breakup or something kind of serious and you're being over dramatic. Like the amount of letters they sent to the judge over the weekend was kind of hilarious. Like they kept like some motions, but mostly letters, like just filings. Like, please, we, we promise we weren't lying. Like, don't do this with the special master. And then- they added five attorneys the day of, and it was all about this specific angle, which was, we didn't mess up discovery, like don't do this special master thing. And 
you really only respond that way if you actually did sort of withhold stuff in discovery. And right. that's the only way I think the Abby Grossberg stuff could have really, really penetrated. Them. Yeah. Right? Because it, it needed, with the Murdochs, it's always about, can you start a cascade? It's obviously, we know it's rotten to the core, but the question is, can you actually expose it enough that you actually get a, a full-ish picture? And I just don't think anything else on the horizon has the potential to do that. Maybe Smartmatic, but I think once Smartmatic gets serious, they will settle, but it's so far away. Right, because it's too much money to turn to turn down. And if you're a public company, you're not interested in justice. You're just interested in money, ultimately. Right, because again, even from Dominion's perspective, and I, I totally understand this. You know, I never, they've done a lot. I mean, what the discovery and getting, you know, they that motion for summary judgment basically laid out all the facts. Like the only thing that would have happened at trial is that they would have had to talk about these things. But right. there was no new information anymore. It's all out there between the the stuff that's been exposed. It's available now, and so it's kind of on us to deliver the accountability. Even if they want, let's even say they got a three billion dollar jury settlement, right? The headlines would have been, here's why it doesn't matter for Fox, because they're not going to have to pay and they're going to, and it's to a degree, it's true. They would have bogged it down in appeals for years, right? I mean, Alex Jones had a, has a billion dollar settlement award against him and he's still in appeals and he's on air every day. So it is, it's annoying and it's grating, but I understand why they took it. And I think obviously Smartmatic would do the same thing. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Angelo. Thank you. Jeff Charlotte is the author of The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. Welcome to Fast Politics, Jeff Charlotte. Hi, Molly. Good to be with you. So we're talking about The Undertow, which is a book. Explain to us a little bit about what this book is about and why you decided to write it. Yeah, the subtitle is Scenes from a Slow Civil War, which is uh, what I believe that we are in. I've been reporting on right-wing movements for 20 years across the United States and around the globe. And this book is in some ways, I don't want to say it's a summary. I mean, it's scenes, it's stories, but it's sort of coming from this moment of seeing changes that even given the sort of the depth of exposure I had to right-wing movements, I recognized this is, this is something new. I recognized it in 2015 when Trump came down the golden escalator and I said, that is the fascist aesthetic. Will he find the movement? Which before that I had actually written for a variety of reasons, probably wouldn't happen in the United States on a grand scale. I was wrong. This book is about being wrong. It's about chasing the the kind of the formation of the fascist movement out of the fascist aesthetic uh, around the country, looking at the martyr myths of Ashley Babbitt. So explain to us where you went and who you talked to. So the book covers sort of 10 years. The undertow is what I think of as the currents that some of us, you know, saw, I think you saw, and, and some of us didn't, pulling us out to sea. So it talks about, we talk about the men's rights movement, the guys who brought to us that delightful metaphor of the red pill. Right. And some of the churches, if we'd been paying attention, would have helped us understand why there would be an evangelical embrace of Trump. Then through the Trump scene, the big part of the book begins January 6, 2021, when I watched 35-year-old white woman, Ashley Babbitt, Air Force veteran, climb up through a window in the Capitol and get shot. And the officer who shot her was a black man. And being a student of American mythology and American history, I knew what they would do with that because that is the old lynching story. And sure enough, she has become a martyr of the movement. So I flew out to Sacramento, California for a rally for Ashley Babbitt that turned into a brawl between Proud Boys and Antifa. 
and then drove east very slowly, just talking to people who dreamed they saw Ashley Babbitt or believed they had met Ashley Babbitt or thought she was a hero or an angel or a leader in a spiritual sense of their movement. Who were the kind of people you talked to? Every kind of person. And I think this is, this is especially to, you know, I live in Vermont, a very blue state, but I can drive 10 miles in any direction. I can find a Confederate flag, a Trump flag, or worst of all, the all black flag. If you've seen this flag out there, it's an American flag, but all in shades of black. It stands for no prisoners. In the Civil War that those who fly it believe is has started or is coming, that means kill everyone on the other side. It's a genocide flag. These folks are everywhere. This is not a blue state, red state thing. And the people that I met range from Rob Brum, a leader of a militia in Marinette, Wisconsin, about 6,000 strong, invited me into his arsenal with his little kids, to a delightful grandmotherly couple. I remember the guy said, oh, I can't wait to get my hands on a protester. I'm going to beat him up and get on CNN. His wife looked at him and sort of frowned and said, oh, Gene, and then she cracks a smile. These are not the folks you would expect to hear this pleasure and violence from. Suburban folks, people of color too, I should say. And I write about that in the book, the ways in which fascism has a gravity that can pull even people of color into its white supremacist vision, what my friend Anthea Butler in her book, White Evangelical Racism, calls the promise of whiteness. That's really interesting. Talk to us a little bit about David French, because that that's pretty interesting. I read this interview <laughs> that you talked about. No, but it's a, you know, explain to us a little bit about this. Well, David French, the, uh, the former National Review writer yes. who has been sort of normalized by the New York yeah. Times, a man who not too many years ago was writing with the most venomous bile about the stupidity of feminism, a man who would have fit at that point right in well, with my chapter on the men's rights activists, who are not the most powerful movement I've ever written about, but are actually the worst. Interesting. Why? Every right-wing movement is always more interesting than its caricature, except them. They're dumber. <laughs> They're just dumber. They really are sitting around talking about their ex-girlfriends, ex-wives, or the girlfriends they never had, but believe that they were entitled right. to, right? So David French, there's that veneer. And I think this is the way that so many, so many sort of of our peers in the media can't see, well, David French is educated and everything else. But there he is coming out of that. Now it's New York Times. Now, the one thing I'll say that I think is interesting is that when I began the big piece of reporting for this book right after January 6, 21, that language of civil war, which I would have dismissed at one point, but I was noticing scholarly historians speak it, and I know that they are cautious and rightly so, and I was paying attention, but even my colleagues in the press dismissed it. Now here we are with David French writing in the New York Times, like, we've got to take this idea of the national divorce Seriously. So there's a bunch of things going on there. There's that recognition. But yeah, implicit in this book is media criticism throughout. The subtitle is Scenes from a Slow Civil War, but it might be How to Tell Stories About Fascism, because I'll be the first to say that I don't think any of us have fully figured it out. If we had, we wouldn't be where we are. Oh, yeah. No question. I want to ask you about this global fascist movement because it's so interesting. So can you explain to us a little bit? You did sort of infiltrate the ranks of Republican leaders, leadership for C Street. Explain to us what those people think about the black flag people. Yeah, this was uh, some earlier books of mine, uh, The Family and C Street. And you can see a Netflix documentary about the family. 
These are the folks who bring us the National Prayer Breakfast every year. And they're the oldest and arguably most influential Christian nationalist organization going back to 1935. They thought the New Deal was of Satan. It was socialism. It was communism. And so they organized businessmen. And, and they were interesting partly because they don't fit the caricature of the Southern preacher in the too tight suit pounding his pulpit, thumping his Bible. These were members of Congress, military leaders, business leaders, educated internationalists in scope. And they build up this international movement. And to be honest, I thought, despite all their problems, they had, when, when Trump came down that golden escalator, I said, oh, there he is. The man that groups like the Fellowship have been supporting overseas, where they have embraced the worst dictators by their own admission. They're like, but this is part of God's plan. Here he is, come home to roost. Would they actually accept that in the United States? They would. They did. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we know enough about the history of fascism. And I don't use the F word lightly at all. And I, and you know, it's uh, in fact, in my book about the family, I wrote a chapter called the F word, fascism. Back in the post-war period when they were recruiting actual Nazi war criminals to advise congressmen, guys so bad that they weren't allowed in the United States. So this group, the, the family, had to fly the congressmen to Germany to take counsel with these figures. And even then I said, this isn't fascism. There's more than one kind of bad under the sun. This is horrible, but it is a different sort. Now here we are with the real F word in action, which is the convergence of elite and popular movements. That's what we have when we have there's always right-wing movements, but when groups that normally wouldn't talk to each other are aligned, then we're in trouble. So I want to push on this a little bit. So we're talking about fascism. My friend, uh, Tom Nichols, who, who I really like as a friend, did a whole thread about how we're overusing fascism. That's not how you, not how you do it. You don't say it like that. It's not accurate. It's this, it's that. Explain to us why he's wrong. Actually, Tom and I got into a, a very friendly and, and good discussion, and, and I like Tom Nichols' work too. And I should say, the important point that Tom and I both recognized is, I think we're both all hands on deck guys. We both recognize it, whether you call it authoritarianism or fascism, it is here, it is serious, and it means making common cause with those whom you might not agree on other issues. On this one, I would argue with... Tom, I think that the mistake that he and some others are making, are there some kind of ahistorical mistakes? And first, we really need to look, to understand fascism, we can't just look at the history of World War II. We need to go back to French 19th century fascism. We need to look at the scholarship on how the Nazis, there's a great book called Hitler's American Model. When I say historian, I do not mean popular writers. I mean, kind of dense, hardgoing scholarly writers. But what Tom is doing, what some who resisted, they're conflating fascist regime, a fascist government that is in place with a fascist movement. And Tom is right. We do not have, and Trump was not able to achieve a Hitlerian or a Mussolinian government, although Tom was restricting himself to the European model. Well, I feel a lot better. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, let's talk about Sahardo in Indonesia and ongoing fascism there. Let's talk about Duterte and Marcos and Philippines, these are fascist regimes, some of them by name. Let's talk about Franco in Spain, which was a, a softer, very brutal fascism. Right. You know, it, so there, there's these models. And so the question, and I think Tom and I are in the same footing, but I do say, look, mostly we shouldn't be quibbling over this. Fascism, authoritarianism, as long as you recognize that what so much of the media is doing now 
which is replicating the horse race politics of 2016. Lumpur DeSantis, who the hell cares? But don't you think that the sort of road to hell is paved with, well, not fascism in the European definition, but fascism in the, you know, U.S. definition? I mean, don't you think that's sort of how we got here is by this kind of very, you know, specific, slightly over-intellectual. I mean, isn't it sort of the road to fascism is filled with people telling you you're overreacting? <laughs> yes, yes. Those of us who've long been on the right-wing beat story of my life, I remember when in 2008 the family came out and interviewers would say, why are you talking about the Christian right now that Obama's been elected and the Christian right is gone forever? I'm not kidding you. Oh, Even I'm now. Sure. Even now, some unnamed producers are saying, oh, we're going to pass. We think Trump is over. And Trump may be over, right? I don't think he is, but Trumpism isn't. And that's the failure to understand social movements. I got into it with a senior New York Times political reporter who said, we don't need to call this racist. And not only that, he went further. Like, And if you do, you're not really doing journalism. I find this kind of normalization where we see, you know, I think a New York Times op-ed, Frank Luntz writing, how do we further the agenda of Trump without Trump himself? The agenda is fascism. So how do we find a more polite manifestation of that? I think Luntz is, is in the weeds. He doesn't understand that the appeal of fascism is not so much a set of policies. It's always been historically an aesthetic. Right. It always has been an aesthetic. That's a good point. But isn't Luntz ultimately, he wants fascism. I mean, you may not. I mean, I was on a panel with him last week. He's a lovely guy. But like Trumpism to them is just a sort of a bunch of, you know, I mean, what I think is incredible about about the sort of quote unquote good Republicans is they still believe in all of the quote unquote. And again, I don't think he has a ton of policies, but I mean, they believe in all of Trumpism. There are certain aspects of it they find slightly distasteful. They find it distasteful, which is a failure to understand the nature of the movement. It's because those guys don't go to Trump rallies, or if they do, they sit in the VIP seats or with the press. For the book, in my reporting, Molly, I've been a reporter for 30 years. I, I have used a press pass, I think, exactly once. I'm not interested. Look, I've moved amongst the, the, the rich and the powerful for the family, but I'm not interested in that kind of access journalism. And when I go to a Trump rally, I need to stand in line for six hours like everybody else and listen to the playlist repeat over and over and feel the transgressive joy. Feel people who would never have taken delight in. And what was again and again and again, and here we are again, it's happening again, not reported on. You go to Trump rallies. He is a great performer. He is right. one of the two best orders I've ever heard live. But the reporters are even now still trying to talk about policy instead of, say, the 20 minute aria that he'll right. sing of decapitations, right. disembowelments, rapes and describing in detail and people who would have shivered at such things. It's corny, but really there is a sort of orgasmic element to it right down to when Trump imitates orgasms, which he does. I always think of this as like the bizarro Grateful Dead. These people go to follow Trump wherever he goes. 
Oh, yeah. I've met people who've been to 60, 70 rallies. You can hear Grateful Dead in the parking lot. Fact, deadheads. Yeah. The middle section of the book, each section of the book is named after a song. The middle section is named Dream On after the Aerosmith song, which I love. I was raised on classic rock, but you hear yeah. it in rotation at Trump rallies and people spin in circles. Why? Why do you hear that song? Why? Um, why do you hear Lionel Richie? Why do you hear? <laughs> I mean, you, you're hearing Trump's 1980s playlist is um, why do you hear Pavarotti, right? Right. Just because he likes it or because it speaks to them in a certain way? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so many of these things are yes. It's a little bit like yeah. right down yeah. to I can't believe we're still having the debate. Is, is this fascism? Is it about racism or is it about class or is it about gender? Yes. It is the intersectionality of the right. It strikes me, though, that they just don't have the numbers, ultimately. Oh, 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 no, no, Molly. Tell me why I'm wrong. All right. So there's a couple of things here. And I hear this this all the time. Wait till these militia guys get a load of an F-16, right? And that right. is correct. And I have, I look, I mean, in for this book, I got more guns pointed at me than I had in, in many. I mean, I've been on the wrong side of a gun, but never in a church before. This was something new for me. Or never by the manager of Lauren Boebert's diner, Shooters, Hooters with, with guns. Um, he didn't draw. He just sort of hovered like in the Old West and said, I could not finish my Glock 9. That's what they call the hamburgers, <laughs> all named after guns, Twist and Wesson. So you say, oh, these guys, yeah, they don't have the numbers. And that is correct. What those guys are, are they are sparks. We're in the slow civil war now and there are casualties already all around the country. What happens is, and I've done a lot of reporting from the military too, and we saw in the Washington Post, three generals in the most overlooked piece of the year, I think, warned like the military is not secure. And if we have a real chain of command crisis, as in who's president, if we have one rogue base commander, one, if we have a governor like DeSantis who wants to play chicken, um, then suddenly this can escalate into something much worse. But even before that, there's the Irish troubles. You know, I mean, that seems like a more likely slow rolling, which is what you write about, civil war. It's slow rolling. Look, my, my kid, I have a, a, a queer non-binary kid. They're criminalized in 20 states. People, right. pregnant people are dying for lack of reproductive rights. And we as reporters know that every one of those stories that you see is stands in for a hundred that we don't see. Right, right, right. Um, the, there are casualties now. It's not enough for us to say, well, it'll never, never get violent. The violence is here. So what are we going to do about it? Right. No, I mean, that's completely right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you will come back. Thanks, Molly. I appreciate it. And now your moment of fuckery. Jesse Cannon. Molly Jung Fast down in Florida. They are making horrible laws at a speed that I never imagined was even possible with all the bureaucracy I hear about. Florida had passed a don't say gay law. It was for younger children. They defended it by saying that it was really just to protect little kids from over-sexualized content and that this was obviously we're all being hysterical. That is not true. And we learned that today or we learned that a couple of days ago when Florida passed a don't say gay law K to 12. So high school kids can't be taught about sex. They can't be taught about LGBTQ lifestyles. So imagine the world where you're in high school, you're trying to read Aristotle and you can't say that he's gay or maybe you just don't read Aristotle yet again. Another time where Florida is uh putting religion before science. And for that, they are our moment of fuckery. 
That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives women history has forgotten. We've always been intrigued by stories of disappearances. Whether it's a fraudster from the 17th century who kept evading the authorities, or a novelist who taunted the Nazis and faked her own death, we all want to know, what happened next? To find out, listen to Amanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.